everybody. It's Robert Polly here with the 7th Avenue Project, back from the holidays with a brand new show. And as uh, you regular listeners know, we do like to discuss big ideas on this program. And today, we're going to take on one of the biggest ideas of them all, Einstein's theory of general relativity. It is one of the absolute foundations of modern physics, and it's come up on this show before in my conversations with physicists. Here's me yammering on about it from interviews past. And general relativity, let me just try my hand at this, says that gravity isn't this sort of mysterious pull between objects that Newton talked about, but it, rather it's something about the curvature of space itself. Einstein was looking at gravity, and he came up with a description of gravity that is nothing like what we had before, the idea that bodies are simply attracted to each other. Mm -hmm. Instead, he said, there's a general relativity, an effect on the geometry of space by mass. Massive things change the geometry of space, bend space. And those are the sorts of things I usually say about general relativity, or GR as it's known to aficionados. And to tell you the truth, I'm kind of sick of it. Not general relativity itself, no way, but rather the glossing over of this spectacular theory with just a couple of sentences. After all, this is the framework that completely overturned physicists' conceptions of time and space, and the modern picture of the universe is out and out based on it. And yet, popular science explainers on radio and TV, and even in books, often give general relativity a wide berth because it is considered so freaking complicated, so radically divorced from ordinary thinking, and so demanding of a laborious process of indoctrination that it's not even worth trying to talk about it with a general audience. In fact, when Einstein unveiled the theory in 1915, it was said that only a couple of people in the entire world could understand it. These days, a lot more people do get it, but they're still a pretty select crowd that does not include us regular schlubs. Well, today on the show, we are going to try to raid the treasury and redistribute the knowledge wealth to the 99%, i.e. general relativity for the masses. Get it? Masses? Well, you will when the show's over. And to pull off this ambitious feat of public education, I've called on the skills of theoretical physicist Anthony Aguirre. He's studied general relativity, he's applied it in his own work on the origins and the evolution of the cosmos, and he's taught it to undergraduates. So I figured he could drop some science on us, too. Herewith, the first of two parts, General Relativity for Beginners with Anthony Aguirre. Well, take us back, Anthony, to Einstein's thought process leading up to uh, his announcement or his uh, publication of his theory of general relativity. Ten years before, he had come out with the theory of special relativity. That's right. His first step. What was special about it? <laughs> um, well, I suspect it was just relativity then, but, but later it became special relativity. Oh, is that right? Okay. The idea behind special relativity was a very simple one that took humanity an astoundingly long time to actually figure out. It was really Galileo that first truly understood it. And the way Galileo put it was he had this long experiment that, that you were supposed to imagine where you shut up in the bottom hold of a boat. And you can do all kinds of experiments. You can jump this way and that, and you can let little butterflies fly around and fish swim in every direction. And what you notice is that whether the boat is moving or sitting still in the water has no effect whatsoever on what happens to all those experiments that you do in the ship. And this is very familiar to us nowadays. We take a transcontinental airplane flight going you know, 600 miles an hour, and we have a nice glass of wine and nothing 
you know, spills out of our cup, nothing flies around. Um, so we're used to this now, but we don't think that hard about it. Einstein thought very hard about it, and that formed the basis of special relativity. What in particular he assumed was that everybody, no matter where you are or which way you're pointed or, or when you're doing experiment, and most crucially, what state of motion you're in, as long as that motion is uniform, like an airplane at constant speed or a boat at constant speed, you get exactly the same results. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So if we're in the airplane and it's moving at a constant speed and we don't look out of the window, exactly, we wouldn't even know we were moving. We wouldn't feel anything. We wouldn't see anything act differently. That's right. Or, or if you're sitting in a train and you suddenly think, yay, I'm going, but you realize it's just the train next to you moving, <laughs> there's the relativity because you can't tell whether it's you or, or them that's moving. And this was the, the key insight that Galileo had that we shouldn't be able to tell using the laws of physics and the experiments that we can do, whether we're moving or not. But, but Einstein noticed a peculiar thing, which is that he had been learning about electromagnetism. This is the theory of electricity, magnetism, and as it turned out, light, that uh, James Clerk Maxwell had derived. And he noticed that Maxwell's equation said that light had a particular speed. It just is some number. And so that is different from the speed of normal objects. Normally, I can throw a ball any speed I like if I'm strong enough. And if I throw a ball and someone else is walking past, they might see the ball moving a little bit faster or a little slower than I see the ball being thrown. Whereas the speed of light is the same for everybody, no matter what state of motion they're in, um, according to Maxwell's equations. So Einstein decided, well, either I have to tinker with Maxwell's equations or I have to take this seriously and see what are the consequences of realizing that light travels at the same speed for everybody. So in our everyday life, with most things going on around us, the speed of one thing is relative to the speed of another. If I'm sitting in a train and there's another train on a parallel track moving right alongside of my train at the same speed, let's say 70 miles per hour, and I look over at another passenger in that train, we're going to look like we're not moving at all relative to each other. If that train goes a little faster and let's say goes 90 miles an hour, then I might say, oh, it's moving at 20 miles an hour, which is the difference between its speed and my speed. And everything is like that, speed relative to how I'm moving. Right. But what you're saying Einstein realized is that with light, it's not that way. Light is like this train that no matter how fast I move, that train seems to be speeding along at precisely the same velocity at all times, no matter how fast I move, right? That's right. 186,000 miles a second, if you want to go with... Right. The English system. <laughs> That's light. Um, so the math just doesn't work out with light. I mean, the, the traditional math, the Newtonian math, if you add up these velocities, how is it that I can go faster and faster and faster, and yet light doesn't seem to, you know, get any closer, right? It's, it's profoundly disturbing when you think about it. And it, it so violates your everyday intuition that, you know, in some sense, that's what Einstein is for, right? <laughs> if, if it was easy, it, somebody would have figured it out long before then. So Einstein was was the one who had the flexibility of mind to accept that reality could be like that and follow that to the consequences that it implied. And, and what it implies, if the numbers aren't adding up in the old framework, the only thing that you could fiddle with are measurements of time and space. That's exactly right. And when you say something is traveling at a particular speed, what do you mean? That it traverses some amount of space in some amount of time. And if you start 
thinking, well, maybe different observers can disagree about what that interval of space is or what that interval of time is, then that opens up some flexibility. And in fact, that is exactly the flexibility you need to accommodate this idea that light always travels at the same speed. And, and basically what he said then is in order for all of this to add up, uh, for any two observers moving at different speeds, your ruler is not my ruler and your clock is not my clock. Precisely. So space and time have to be mushy. They have to bend a little bit. But he worked out a kind of rigorous mathematical system where we know how much it has to be adjusted so that in a sense it all still adds up. That's right. And what he provided was a precise set of mathematical transformations. He called It, it was named after actually someone... Lorentz, who, who developed the same set of transformations via a different manner of thinking earlier. But it tells you, if I make some measurements, say, of an interval of time and an interval of distance, and someone's flying by me at some high speed, they will also measure some interval of time and interval of distance. They won't agree with me, but I know mathematically exactly what the relation between what they measure and what mm. I measure are. Moreover, the the really interesting thing, and, and the, the reason why Einstein sometimes felt that relativity shouldn't be called relativity, but rather invariance, that is, things that don't change, there is something you can measure that everybody agrees on, whatever their state of motion. And that thing you can measure has to do with space and time at once. It's a combination of the spatial extent and the temporal extent um, into one thing, the space-time kind of length or space-time distance that everybody agrees on. Can you think of that as a kind of four-dimensional entity, um, three dimensions of space and one dimension of time? That's right. And and so what Einstein's theory really tells us that, is that the natural way to really think about the world is, is a four-dimensional thing, three space dimensions, one time dimension, and that we should measure distances, not distances between things or durations, but we should measure distances between events. Now, an event is an important idea in, in special or general relativity. It's something that happens at a particular place and time. So me snapping my fingers right here is an event. When I snap my fingers a little later, that's another event, and they could happen at different places. And what special relativity tells you is that if you measure the space-time distance between two events, everybody will agree on those. They might say, one might say that those events were separated by five seconds, some might say six seconds, the distance might be different, but everyone will agree on the space-time separation of those two events. Mm, mm. Now, if you move faster than me, what is your clock like in relation to my clock? That's an interesting question because if if you're traveling by me, I would say that your clock looks like it's running slower. I, you know, if I'm watching the clock on your the watch on your wrist, say, I see the the ticking happening slower than on my watch. The, the the odd thing is that you say exactly the same thing about my watch, and you think, well, how, how can that be? Um, and that's how it is. And moreover, there are things we can do, like we can compare our watches, and then we can go and do stuff and run around and, and go at different speeds, and then we can come back and compare our watches. And the watches will not necessarily agree at that point, um, but there won't be any paradox. One of us genuinely will have felt less time go by than the other by some tiny amount. Um, but they will really disagree, and there, and there won't be any paradox associated with that. Mm. It all adds up in space-time. It all adds up perfectly in space-time. And this is, in some sense, no different than when I travel through space from point A to point B. I know that I could take a long route or a short route to get between those two points. 
In the same way, if I travel through space-time from event A to event B, I might take a long route or a short route, and depending which route I take, more or less time might go by on my clock. So if you and I uh, synchronized our watches right now, and then we went off and, and wandered around a bit and came back together, depending on where your wanderings took you and uh, the kind of motion, your watch and my watch might not agree when we got back together again. That is exactly right. So if I wanted to age less than you during our little walkabout, um, I could choose a path in which less time would elapse. That's right. And and it's a little bit like exercise. If you want to age less, you you have to work really hard at it. So the way that you have the most time pass is just by sitting around and essentially doing nothing, not accelerating, just essentially sitting in the same place and being and so-called inertial observer, not being accelerated. If you do a whole bunch of acceleration and move around at high speeds and go back and forth and then come back to the same event as the lazy person, less time will have passed for you. So we've both chosen different paths through space-time. And I, the exercise guy, the active guy, have chosen a path that took in a lot more space than you, just sitting here. That's right. Right? And as a result of that, in a sense, fewer ticks have gone by on my clock compared to yours. That's right. Wow. Uh, Dr. Einstein's anti-aging formula. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So we've been talking about merely special relativity, a special case of relativity. And you pointed out earlier that um, Einstein didn't say it was special initially because he didn't know general relativity was coming (laughs) along. But let's let's make that leap. So after um, Einstein went public with his idea of, of special relativity, or just relativity as he called it then, Another 10 years went by, during which I think he was scratching his head a lot and Mm -hmm. thinking an awful lot, eventually coming out with general relativity. What was he thinking about? Well, Einstein realized pretty much right away that special relativity could not be the last word, that his special relativity had to also apply to gravity. One way to look at this is that if you imagine I have a big bowling ball and someone on Venus has an incredibly sensitive gravity measuring device. So they can measure the gravitational pull of my bowling ball here on Earth. So then, if I wiggle my bowling ball back and forth, what Newtonian mechanics says, Newtonian gravity says, is that instantaneously, that measurement device on Venus will feel the changes when I wiggle back and forth my bowling ball. Because there's no, in Newtonian gravity, you you just say, okay, where is all the mass right now? And you add all that up and you say, okay, that's how much gravity there is, and and that accelerates things around due to gravity. Newton's idea of gravity was it was instantaneous. Exactly. That there was this attraction across space, no matter how great the distance, that was instant. That's right. You, uh, If you were to conjure up a planet right now out in space, we would immediately feel its its pull on Earth. That's right. Right? And... Einstein knew that that couldn't be right because if, because essentially that was information traveling faster than the speed of light. If I took my, my bowling ball and wiggled it back and forth, I could send Morse code messages to Venus instantaneously, mm-hmm. and that violates special relativity. Mm. And, and the problem at heart is that uh, Newton says, well, let's just ask where all the masses are right now. But special relativity tells us that there isn't any particular single meaning to right now. So Einstein knew right away that he had to replace or or extend 
uh, gravity to, so as to combine it with special relativity. We should add that we didn't mention this earlier, but another part of special relativity was that nothing can move faster than the speed of light. And that's a speed limit for the universe. That's right. Um, I, I asked you what problem prompted Einstein to work toward the theory of general relativity. And you said, well, it's this idea of communication across a distance instantaneously that Newtonian gravity sort of posits uh, as being the central problem. Now, I've always heard a, another story, which is that the thing that really got him puzzling was this thing called the equivalence principle. That's right. So I, I should say that I, I don't know if superluminal propagation or, or you know, faster things than light faster travel. than light yeah. communication <laughs> was was what actually uh, got Einstein thinking. I yeah. think but he immediately saw that gravity was not consistent with special relativity. So he knew that he had to replace it. And and what he needed were clues. So you have to think, you know, what clues were lying around about gravity that might point the way forward. And what he noticed was this little thought about fact that Galileo also discovered, which is that all things fall at the same rate. If I take a wooden and an iron ball, you know, apocryphally dropped off the Tower of Pisa. They they hit at the same time. <laughs> you mean it didn't really happen? He didn't uh, really do that experiment? It didn't, didn't quite happen that way. <laughs> um, he used, you know, things on inclines and so on. Um, but this is a curious thing, and, and it took Galileo actually doing an experiment to prove it because everybody just assumed that the iron ball would fall faster. The heavier object will fall faster, yeah. And that's obviously, you know, seems to be the case because it's so much heavier. You would think the ground attracts it so much more yeah. than the wooden one. But then if you think again, you think, well, wait a minute. I also know that if I push something, it's much harder to get an iron ball moving than mm-hmm. a wooden one. Mm-hmm. So on the one hand, it's harder to get moving. On the other hand, it's pulled harder. So then you think, well, it's not clear which one of those is going to win. And the astonishing thing is that those two sort of counterbalancing effects exactly cancel out. So the iron ball is both pulled more strongly toward the earth and harder to move. And those two cancel them, each other out exactly so that the iron ball falls at the same speed as a wooden ball. So that, you know, why, why are those exactly balanced? And this was something that, that puzzled Newton, uh, but he didn't really do anything with it. And, you know, it, it then got sort of papered over by just calling both things mass. We, we call mass the thing that describes how strongly something is pulled to earth we also call mass the thing that says how hard it is to move an object or or you could say inertial mass that's it, how hard it is to push something mm-hmm. or gravitational mass exactly and, and that's once how you, hard it's pulled by gravity and once you distinguish those two then you ask well why are those two exactly the same thing and, and they are they do seem on the face of it completely different they're completely different certainly for other forces if you ask you know how what controls how much something uh, gets attracted by the electric force? It's mm-hmm. its electric charge. It has nothing to do with its mass. Something might have a tiny mass and a huge electric charge or vice versa. Yeah. Only with gravity do those two seem to be exactly the same concept. And, and the fact that they're exactly the same was known for hundreds of years. Right. But Einstein was the first to say, whoa. He, he, as far as I know, he was the first to do anything with it. I'm sure lots of people said, wow, that's weird. Um, but again, you know, there's a reason he gets famous. <laughs> Einstein was the one that that really sort of understood the import of that. So, so am I right again in putting it this way, that an object's inertia, that is its resistance to, to force applied to it, how hard it is to push, 
is equal to the pull that gravity exerts on it. Yes. Okay. And that's, that's right. gravitational mass and inertial mass. They're equal. It's a very strange thing. Einstein thought about this. Right. And he came up with an amazing answer. The thing that he realized was that suppose you are in some enclosed box again. We, we've already used this box to think about, you know, moving our box in, in uniform ways and seeing that we do experiments and, and they all come out the same. Or like Galileo's ship. Galileo's ship. Yeah. So suppose we take this box and just drop it off the edge of a cliff. Okay. So what a we... Am I in this box? <laughs> it's it's a very tall cliff and you have lots of time to do your experiments. <laughs> and there's a nice cushy uh, pillow at the bottom. So don't worry. You, you get to relax and just do your experiments and, and think freely without any panic. So in this box, you will be, first of all, weightless because the box is falling at just the same rate as you. So so you just kind of float inside the box. Everything else floats inside the box. And you can do all kinds of experiments. Now, the crucial thing is why does everything just float inside the box? Why is everything kind of floating around? It's precisely because everything is falling at the same rate. Right. The box is moving at exactly the same rate as its contents, me and the things I'm playing around with. And therefore, all everything inside the box is going to seem like it's just floating in space. That's right. And if, you know, parts of them had fallen faster, then we would see things drift toward the ceiling or, or toward the floor. So what Einstein noticed was that the inside of this falling box is exactly like physics without gravity. So if the thing is freely falling, essentially gravity goes away from the, from the perspective of being inside the box. It's just the same as if you're out in intergalactic space and there's nothing gravitating anywhere around. In fact, this is the principle behind NASA's famous vomit comet. Exactly. <laughs> this is the plane they take uh, would-be astronauts up in to simulate uh, a zero-gravity environment. The plane goes up, and then it goes into a steep dive, right? It's just mm -hmm. like the falling box. Exactly. And everybody seems to float around inside this plane for about a minute, mm -hmm. and then they throw up. <laughs> <laughs> they often do. <laughs> this won't happen to you in your box, don't worry. Don't worry. Um, so Einstein... He even described in, in one of his memoirs that um, he, he said something like, and then suddenly it came to me that if you were in this freely falling frame, as he called it, physics would be just like regular special relativity physics, as if gravity were just gone. Yeah. And so what he realized was that gravity is something that you can make go away by your state of acceleration, mm -hmm. that acceleration can be traded off against gravity. The fact that you're accelerating downward toward the Earth cancels out gravity. Or, or on the other hand, uh, acceleration can simulate gravity. So, exactly. So, so if you get in an elevator, you, as the elevator goes up, you suddenly feel heavier. Right. And, and, and the real insight that Einstein had was that you don't just feel heavier, you are heavier. In, in every sense, it is just the same thing when that elevator goes up as if the gra if the earth suddenly got more massive if i'm out in a in the middle of space with absolutely no gravity around me but the rocket ship i'm on is accelerating i'll feel a pressure and we call that pressure g forces g for gravity mm -hmm. and that's exactly the same you're saying as if i was on a planet and feeling its gravitational pull that's right and so in a sense you you, you can think of it this way it's a little bit mind bending but so so imagine that there's sort of a We'll take our box, but we'll make it kind of intangible so, so it can just fall and it can fall through things and so on. So we can imagine a box, you know, falling through the room we're in right now. 
in that box, everything is just weightless. There's no gravity. Special relativity applies and so on. Everything would just float around. Um, that's the kind of natural state of things. But we happen to be in this peculiar situation where we have this big object beneath us, which is accelerating us upward, right? It's pushing us through this this box um, at 9.8 meters per second per second. It's accelerating us upward. And so we feel this odd force that's pushing us down, you know, toward this big object. Um, and we say, well, that's gravity. That, that force that's pushing us down that way is gravity. Um, but it's just as accurate in some sense to think of it as the ground is just rushing upward. It's accelerating upward and it's smushing us down just like as if we were in a rocket ship. So, so we right now are sort of in this rocket ship Earth, which is accelerating upward and we're just feeling this G-force that's pushing us down. Well, so you're saying that gravitation, what we've been, what we traditionally call gravitation, this pull that we feel toward the Earth, or, or you could say the Earth's surface pushing up against us, the mm -hmm. fact that my butt is flattening out on this chair. Right. <laughs> That's what we call gravity. You're saying in some way it's similar to what I feel on a rocket ship that's launching and exerting a force on my backside that way, that mm -hmm. somehow the the thing that I think of as a massive object pulling me down is the same as just a thing accelerating. That's right. How's that possible? I mean, the Earth isn't moving, right? I mean, it's not it's not moving in the direction we're talking about. The real question is, when is there not gravity? Or, or when is there not an acceleration force? So if, if we're driving along in our car, we have the sense that, you know, I turn the steering wheel this way or that way, or hit the brakes or the accelerator, and suddenly I feel these funny forces that, you know, when I hit the brakes, I get pushed toward the front of the car. Yeah. And that's because I'm suddenly accelerating. I'm not any longer in what's called an inertial frame, the, the frame of constant uniform motion, but I'm, I'm accelerating. So I've kind of done something to deviate from that state of, of uniform motion that, that, say, special relativity laws apply to. When you hit the brakes, you're, you're decelerating, but you, you mean that's a form of acceleration. Yeah, it's yeah. negative acceleration. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, but when you accelerate in one direction or another, you're going to feel that force. You're going to be, right. if, you're, if you turn, you're going to be pulled toward the outside of the car. Uh, if you stop, you're going to be pulled toward the front. If you speed up, you're going to be pulled toward the back of the car. Exactly. Yeah. Now, why don't we feel forces like that all the time, right? When our car is stopped, we don't feel any weird forces like that. Mm. We don't feel pushed toward one side of the car or the front or the back. Mm -hmm. And you can ask, why not? It's because we're, in those particular senses, in a so-called inertial frame. So we don't feel any weird forces. But but we do. We feel pushed toward the bottom of the car. That's right. Gravity's right? still there. So where is the, the kind of natural non-force, you know, the, what is the frame that you don't feel any force in? And what Einstein realized is that the natural no state of motion are, are frames that are falling toward the center of massive objects. So those are the frames in which you don't feel any, any inertial forces. The frames where you're holding at a steady distance from the center of some massive object is just like it's accelerated away from the middle of that thing. It's not accelerating with respect to the actual object, it's accelerating with respect to the inertial frames, which you imagine falling through. Okay, so we talked a little bit about uh, imaginary box that we dropped off a cliff, and I'm inside of it. Right. And as I and the box fall, I feel 
no force at all. I feel as though I'm floating and everything's floating around me, zero gravity. And you're saying Einstein said, well, that is kind of like the neutral position. That's the neutral position. That's, that's no gravity. That's the basic starting point. Right. Now, you you fall, and suppose you're intangible too. You, you, you can fall right through this room. Right. You see me, and you say, well, I'm, I'm in this normal, natural position. Physics is, is normal, as if there's no gravity. But you, you, Aguirre, you're in this funny thing where you're accelerating upward at 9.8 meters per second squared with respect to me. So obviously you feel some weird stuff in your funny accelerating frame. Now I say, well, I'm just sitting here, you know, on the surface of the earth. But in, Einstein said that, you know, you, you know, you, Robert, have the, the right idea that that is the more natural state that I am. Aguirre is in this funny upward accelerating frame and the funny extra force that I feel because I'm in this accelerated frame, I'm so used to it, I, I call it, I give it a name, gravity. So gravity, in a way, if we take the, the sort of free fall or free floating you know, state as sort of the most natural position you could be in, mm-hmm. gravity is kind of a distortion. Exactly. What's it distorting? It's distorting really the structure of space and time. It's changing which frames we call or which frames are those natural inertial frames and which aren't. Um, th- this kind of backward way of looking at things, which is really the right way of looking at things, it- it's kind of like when um, when Newton discovered his laws. Everybody thought that the natural state of things was to be at rest and to get the- to have them moving, you had to constantly be applying a force. What Newton realized, and well, Galileo as well, was that the natural state of things was to be in uniform motion. And to to stop them, you had to apply a force. To make them deviate, you had to apply a force, and so on. So so by turning upside down the sense of natural, he realized th- this new insight into, into reality. And Einstein, I think, did the same thing. He realized that the natural state of things is to be in an inertial frame, where things are floating and, and special relativity applies. Then with respect to that inertial frame, you can say, other frames happen to be accelerating. Maybe because I'm in my car and I hit the brakes, I'm, I'm decelerating. Um, or I might be accelerating because I'm in this funny gravitational field, which, which effectively is pushing me with respect to those inertial frames. Wow. So by doing this sort of clever bit of mental gymnastics, sort of turning things on their head, and saying the most natural state of an object in the in the universe is to be away from gravitation, not to be accelerating, but just to be floating, mm-hmm. right? You now can look at things that are being pulled by gravity. I'm using the old-fashioned Newtonian terminology, pulled mm-hmm. by gravity, and say, now that's the thing that's accelerating. You and I are accelerating right now. We don't think of it that way, but we are. Right. In Einstein's view. In Einstein's view. But now here's a tricky part for me. I'd be willing to accept that a thing that looks to me like it's in free fall is actually motionless and that I'm the one who's moving relative to it. Okay? Mm-hmm. I'm willing to accept that. But what about people on the other side of the Earth who are feeling the same pull we are mm-hmm. but in the opposite direction? Well, well, the the freely falling frames, the ones where physics is natural in some sense, they are falling toward the center of the Earth. The inertial frames are all falling toward the center of the Earth. And and that's telling you something weird, that, that the structure of space and time um, and the structure of these frames 
is structured around the presence of the Earth that's there, this big gravitating body. So that in turn is telling you that Earth is doing something to the structure of space and time itself. And that, that really is the core of what Einstein said, is that the presence of mass changes the structure of space and time. And that change in the structure of space and time manifests as what we call gravity. So we've got to imagine a kind of geometry uh, for space and time that is not the old-fashioned Euclidean geometry that I think most of us live in in, in our everyday lives. Mm-hmm. Straight lines, nice straight lines, a nice little box with Cartesian coordinates, X and Y and Z, right? Right. I mean, we've got to imagine a, a geometry in which you could have these two free-falling frames going in what seems like the opposite direction, and yet they're both, in a sense, doing the same thing, right? That's right. And and part of what's difficult about this is is thinking about curved spaces, and part of what's difficult is thinking about curved space-time, which is even harder. So so maybe it's worth starting with, with curved space. Yeah, let's do that. And, and And here we're getting to the point where you know, most discussions of general relativity for for the, you know, popular audiences begin and end, where they show you a little picture of space, what looks like a kind of grid, being warped by a massive object like the Earth, right? Mm-hmm. Like a bowling ball on a trampoline or like a big rock on a bed, right. you know, sort of pushing down this fabric called space into a kind of funnel or a well or a dent, right? Right. So we've all seen those pictures probably if we've looked at any you know, popular physics book, and, and they say that's general relativity. Massive objects cause space-time to curve. Yeah. And, and that is useful as a sort of analogy. Mm-hmm. But then you start asking questions like, why does that ball really roll you know, toward the funnel? It's because it's being pulled down by gravity, which is— Exactly. So, so, In fact, I asked this of another physicist years ago. I said, okay, I like this diagram. It makes me feel good until I start thinking about it. Exactly. <laughs> and then when I think about it, I think, okay, the reason the ball is rolling down the funnel is because why would it roll down a funnel? The only reason would be the old-fashioned idea of gravity, that things go down. Yeah. What's really making it move? Well, if you think about the ball rolling, it, the ball just wants to keep rolling in the same direction along a straight line. But then it encounters this area of the surface where the surface is bent or curved, and then the straight line deflects so the ball rolls in a different direction and we, we we sort of look at that and say well it's not rolling in a straight line but when you start to have a curved surface like that you, you start to get a little ambiguity as to what is a straight line so when you know when you think about what is a straight line it carefully you have to say well i pick a couple of points and i think of paths between them and a straight line is the one that's the shortest or you might pick a straight line to be something that doesn't change directions. You kind of keep going in the same direction you were. And when you try to apply those carefully, you realize that it's not so easy always to tell what the straight line is. Like if you if you pick the surface of Earth, if you want to go from San Francisco to New York, you might just draw on a map a straight line. But that's not actually the straight line. That's not the way an airplane will go if it wants to save fuel. It'll take this kind of curve that goes up north a little bit uh, before coming back down to New York. Yeah, if you, you happen to be flying and you open up the uh, in-flight magazine and look at the uh, flight route map in the back, mm-hmm. you'll see all these curves. Right. That's what you're talking about. Yeah. So uh, when we apply that to Einstein's idea of space-time in general relativity, um, what does that mean when we say, you know, it's curved? Well, in physics, when we think about 
a, a particle that's traveling without any forces. It, Newton says that it travels in a straight line. And we think of that as a straight line through space, but it's also a straight line through space-time. If you kind of imagine the time axis or, or four dimensions of space and time, it's a straight line through space and time also. And what Einstein realized was that you can still imagine that particles, even under gravity, travel in a straight line. But what a straight line is might be different from what we think. A straight line might be determined by the fact that there's mass, that there's matter around. And the presence of that matter curves space-time. It changes the structure of space-time such that particles that just travel along a straight line as if they have no forces on them actually curve and bend and do all kinds of interesting things, and, and that's what we call gravity. Mm -hmm. But because they're traveling in curved space-time, curved by mass, right? Mm -hmm. The path of least resistance, what we think of in our very intuitive and wrong vision of how space works as a straight line, that path is actually curved. That's right. So, so a, a particle will say, okay, I'm, I'm going this direction. I'm going to keep going that direction. I'm going to keep going that direction. I'm going to keep going that direction. But then you take a step back and you realize that you've kind of orbited around a planet. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> uh, so uh, our idea, you know, handed down to us by uh, the Greek mathematician Euclid, after whom Euclidean geometry is named, that we live in a world that's sort of right angles, parallel lines, and all of that. It's not really not what's down there. It's not what reality is at the deepest levels. It's not, and and there's two reasons we don't really notice this. One is that the thing that we could notice more easily is a curvature of space. So if space was really curved, it would seem really weird to us, and we would, you know, walk down the street and end up where we started and things like that. But we don't have a lot of spatial curvature, you know, in our environment and in our experience. But what we do experience a lot of is the curvature of space-time. That's what we experience as the fact that things fall. So we have a very direct experience of it, but because we don't think very clearly about space-time and curved space-time, we don't see it as curvature of space-time. We just see it as, wow, these things get attracted toward the Earth. And so it was that genius of insight um, that Einstein had that really connected those two ideas, this, this totally abstract notion of curvature of space-time to this clear, intuitive experience of just things falling. So, so Einstein you know, took these sort of elementary sort of paradoxes about the equivalence of inertial and gravitational mass, that is how how hard you have to push something to get it to move and how hard gravity pulls on that object, uh, about the fact that gravity can't propagate across space instantaneously. He took those sorts of basic thought problems, right? Mm -hmm. And he came up with this idea that, well, to make all this work, you have to imagine that the space that we always thought was this perfectly flat, rectilinear thing is actually kind of rubbery and curvy, Yeah. Exactly. And that and that, that the amount of curvature changes depending on what's in the space. That's right. And and so if you ask what is the path that some object is going to take, you would say normally it it's a straight line through space time. That's that's also a straight line through space. Now you say, okay, but space time is curved in some funny way, just like the surface of the earth is curved. And and then you say, so what is what now is the shortest distance between the beginning and end of this path? Remember, that's the, the first event and the, and the last event. 
And if you figure out what that shortest path is, that's the path that an object will take if there are no forces acting on it. Now that path will not necessarily look like a straight line through space as we conceive it. It will look through like a straight line through space-time in a potentially funny curved space-time, but it won't necessarily be a straight line through space. And that's why if I toss an object across the room, it does not travel in a straight line. It, its trajectory curves towards the Earth. Um, it's traveling in a straight line as far as it knows. It's traveling in a straight line through space-time in a funny curved space-time. And that space-time is curved because of the presence of the Earth. So here's a question for you, Anthony. I I'm going to guess that you as a physicist might never have been asked this. But why do we not see the actual curvature of space-time? Why do we, why are we stuck in this false Euclidean geometry? It, it, it depends what you're looking for, right? <laughs> um, we, we see the curvature of space-time all the time, every time we see something falling. Um, what we, we don't, see that, is to we don't see that it. as a straight line. We have this idea of a straight line. Right. That's not accurate. Right. We don't have a good intuitive feeling for thinking about space-time. Mm -hmm. That's why special relativity is hard. That's why general relativity is hard. Yeah. Because we tend to separate space and time into these two very distinct things. That's mostly because we move so slowly compared to the speed of light that we seldom experience the kind of entangling up of space and time. Mm -hmm. I suspect that if we, if the speed of light were, you know, 20 miles an hour, so on a day-to-day -day basis, we were confronted with all of these weird modifications of things due to special relativity, we'd have a really clear sense of space and time as being the same thing um, and of all these effects, and we'd think in space-time terms. But the speed of light is so fast compared to the speeds we move at that these effects aren't there, and we don't see that tying up space and time. So I think it's just difficult for us to think of things that way. We don't think in four dimensions. We think in three. So the the fact that sitting in front of our face all the time that things travel through on, on curved, well, they travel on straight lines through space and time, which are curved through space, seems weird to us. Right. Hey, if we could see space-time right now, Right in this location, mm -hmm. what would it look like? <laughs> um, I think one way to think about it would would probably be going back to our earlier discussion of the inertial frames falling through the room. What what we would see is this uh, a sort of structure where there's a flowing motion toward the center of the Earth. That's that's the natural kind of state of things. And and we would see that that's flowing by us in, in this strange accelerated way. Um, so we would see this flowing and we'd, we'd throw something across the room and we'd sort of see that it, it follows that natural acceleration flow. Like an object floating uh, on water as it goes over a waterfall or something like that. A little bit. And what, what's tricky is that it's, it's not sort of a constant speed flow like a waterfall. It's more of like an acceleration flow. Mm -hmm. So so we would see that kind of the natural tendency of something flung across the room is to follow this flow and that we're constantly deviating from it. And the pressure we feel, that is gravity, is because this thing has gotten in the way of our natural flow. Yeah. It's the big, earth. This big earth has gotten yeah. in the way. And this chair, mm -hmm. which is why I feel pressure on my butt as I sit in it. Exactly. It stopped me from my natural flow. Right. Uh, this is you, want, you want to follow a straight line. Yeah. And... and 
this chair keeps shoving you away from your nice straight line path, um, and, and it keeps pushing you, and so you feel this strange chair force that keeps shoving on you, that, that makes you deviate from your natural straight line trajectory, straight line through space-time, mm-hmm. um, which would be to, to fall down toward the center of the Earth. Mm. Mm. Now, Einstein didn't just have this revelation and say everything's curved, everything's warped, you know, mass, warped space and all that. He worked out a real rigorous mathematics for it. Exactly. He and some other people, yeah? Yeah. Um, and and fortunately for Einstein, once he realized that, that space-time had to have a different geometry, um, it turned out that mathematicians, especially uh, Riemann, had worked out all of the mathematics behind curved spaces and curved space-time and so on, kind of in all its mathematical gory detail. And, and all Einstein had to do, which, which took some doing for him, was to learn that mathematics. Wow. And, and adjust the equations to certain empirical facts. Right. So he had to, so he had the idea, okay, space-time is curved, matter curves space-time, and because space-time is curved, objects that travel in straight lines, you know, have interesting trajectories, and we call that gravity. But he he needed to figure out how do I write that down? How do I specify what a a straight line through space-time is? And more importantly, how do I connect the curvature of space to the presence of stuff? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He wanted an equation that said, you know, on one side, something describing the curvature of space-time, and on the other side, describing stuff and some equality between them. And that's what took a long time for him to work out. And that's called Einstein's equation. It is. And I asked you before we started this interview uh, to show me Einstein's equation. And we're not talking about E equals MC squared. We're talking about his equation for general relativity, which is a very different beast. Right. Nowhere near as simple as E equals MC squared. <laughs> Can you show it to me? Yep, I've got it right here. <laughs> pass it over. <laughs> Let's see. Okay, so I'm looking at it right now. Uh, and it's not a very long equation. I wouldn't know how to say it aloud, but there's only a couple symbols in it. And they're related by what looks like just basic arithmetic, you know, uh, multiplication and division. Um, why don't you just, can you say it out loud, what this says, and then tell me what it really means? Yeah, so, so the, the, you know, if I were talking to my undergraduate relativity class, I'd say, okay, so now we have Einstein's equations, r mu nu minus one half g mu nu r equals eight pi g over c to the fourth t mu nu. Say it slowly. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so I would say... Um, r mu nu minus one half g mu nu r equals eight pi g over c to the fourth t mu nu. All right. So people could hear that and, again, maybe get the sense that there aren't many symbols in there, uh, aren't many variables, and that they're related by what seem like just basic arithmetic sorts of functions. But there's a lot more to it. I've heard this math is really devilish. So what's really going on in there? So, So there are, in some sense, five different mathematical things in here um and and maybe i can just talk through what they are there's the thing that i called r mu nu and another one called r these are the things that describe how curved space-time is so it's a mathematical object where at some level it it it, first of all it's an object that that is at each point in space so at each point there's a value of this thing r that tells you how curved space is and if it were, say, a sphere, this R would just be related to the, the radius of the sphere, for example. So that's one object. The other is the what I call G mu nu. That's called the metric of space. 
that is the thing that tells you how to measure distances in space and time. And that, that's crucial, as we discussed, because if you say a straight line is the shortest distance between two points, the metric is what tells you what is the shortest distance. It measures that distance. And so depending on the metric, the, the shortest distance between two points, that is the straight line, will change. So change the metric, you change what is the straight line. Two other symbols are g, that's Newton's gravitational constant. It's the same one that, that comes in Newton's famous gravitational law. It tells you how strong gravity is. And that has to be there because we, we know that um, Einstein's equation has to reproduce Newton's equation. So we have to know how strong gravity is, and, and there's the g. Einstein sort of swallowed up Newton. That's right. It, it absorbs <laughs> Newtonian gravity. And, and in the right circumstances, it, it has to give the Newtonian results because they're true. Uh -huh. you, you know, you, Newton's equation is right, at, at least under limited circumstances. Then there's C. C is the speed of light, and that's crucial because you know this is a, a theory of relativity. So that's there because this also has to reduce to special relativity in, in the right cases. In cases of constant motion. Right. In, in, in the sense of once you, once you have, say, no stuff and, and you have an unaccelerated frame, it, it has to reduce to special relativity. So, right. so the C's got to be in there. Okay. Um, and then T mu nu is the description of the stuff, how much mass and energy there is. So the simplest reading of this equation is uh, description of how space-time is curved equals strength of gravity times how much stuff there is. Got it. Uh, and and the reason it's more complicated than it sounds is because those objects or those those variables you described are themselves very complex. Right. They, these these are called tensors. Um, and if if you wrote one of these out, it would look like a a sort of four by four matrix of of numbers. Got it. So those are mu nu. Is that how you say it? Yeah. Those things are are standing for something rather complicated. That's exactly. why this equation seems so simple. But in essence, it says. If you tell me the amount of stuff there is in any particular location, I can tell you the shape of space-time. That's right. It tells you if you have this amount of stuff, space-time is curved in a particular way. Mm -hmm. Now, what makes general relativity difficult is that it tells you, given this amount of stuff, here's how space-time is curved. But it doesn't tell you what the space-time actually quite looks like. Mm -hmm. And to go from how it's curved to the structure of space-time, which is really the, the metric, this thing that tells you how to measure distances, yeah. um, that's hard to do. That, that's where the difficult part of solving Einstein's equations comes in. Uh -huh. So it tells you the shape, but it doesn't tell you sort of distances. It doesn't tell you measures. Right. If, if you say, what is the description of this space-time? If I tell you the metric of space-time, yeah. the way to measure all distances, yeah. then... I've told you everything there is to know. Absolutely. If I know the shape and I know the distances. Right. Yeah. And from the metric, you can compute the curvature. Yeah. That's a pretty well-defined sort of mathematical thing. Yeah. To go the other way from the curvature to compute the metric is really hard because that means you're solving equations. In, in, in math speak, you're solving nonlinear partial differential equations, which is really hard. <laughs> so the math is really hard, but you can do it. You can do it. You can do it. If I say, look, I've got this thing out in space. It's the size and mass of the Earth. You can say, oh, well, it will warp and change space-time in just this way. And then you can start do th doing things like predicting the orbit of objects around it, right? Exactly. 
Yeah. I, interestingly, Einstein, when he first developed these equations, thought, man, these are hard. No one's ever going to actually come up with, you know, clear solutions to these. But it was just one year later that Schwarzschild came up with the first solution to, to general relativity um, that describes essentially a, a point mass or a, a spherical object if you're outside the sphere. And it and it beautifully applies to the Earth or the Sun or almost all of the, the sort of everyday applications of general relativity use this Schwarzschild metric. Now, long before general relativity, you know, Newton or physicists and astronomers after Newton or even before could compute orbits, right? Mm -hmm. And they could use good old-fashioned Newtonian gravity to figure out how things would fall and how things would circle, you know, a planet. That's right. So what did general relativity, I mean, it's a radical new way of visualizing things, mm -hmm. conceiving things. But what, what did it add in a practical sense? Yeah, well, for orbits, almost but not quite nothing in, <laughs> in that <clears throat> Newtonian gravity did a terrific job. Um, and when we send spacecraft around the solar system, you can just about do it using just Newtonian gravity. But there were things that it got slightly wrong. There was this uh, persistent anomaly in, in solar mechanics called the precession of the perihelion of Mercury um, that people were exercised about around the time of Einstein, and which was just an anomaly in the, in the orbit of Mercury. Einstein worked out what general relativity predicted for this and found that he got exactly the right value for this, this orbital parameter. So he must have been very pleased um, when that finally came out, 43 at the bottom of the paper. Yeah, yeah. Well, what else does it do for us, general relativity? <clears throat> In a practical sense, um, one, of, one of the most interesting ones, I think, is the, the GPS system. Um, so the way GPS works is that you essentially compare these signals from, from four different satellites. They, they come to you with a, a timing information from the satellite. And you compare in detail the, the time that you have on your local clock to the time that the satellite is sending you. And that tells you roughly how far away that satellite is from you. Yeah. And so by, and by combining multiple signals, you can sort of triangulate. not quite triangulate because yeah. there's four of them, but yeah, yeah. quadrangulate or something <laughs> um, where you are in space time. Sure. You've got, now, a, you've got those landmarks, which are the, the satellites, and you compute your distance from each of the landmarks. You can figure out where you are. Now, what, what's crucially important, though, is that you understand how the time on your clock is related to the time on the satellite. Yeah. But in, we know from special relativity that satellites that are orbiting the Earth, their clocks will run slower than ours. And something we didn't discuss but is true is that in general relativity, um, clocks that are higher up, that is farther away from a gravitating body, their clocks will actually run a little faster. Now, these are absolutely tiny effects normally. They're hard to measure. But because GPS requires extremely accurate timing, if you didn't take this into account, GPS essentially wouldn't work at all. You would go out and start driving, and two minutes later, your GPS would be off by 10 meters or so. Um, and it would be off by hundreds of miles or thousands of miles by the end of the day. Wow. So it's absolutely crucial to the everyday functioning of GPS. It's not just some small effect. It's absolutely central to the function of, of GPS. It, it's amusing. Um, I was reading up at some point about the GPS system and its deployment, and the hard-nosed engineers that were sort of thinking about the GPS system were so skeptical of this weird general relativity theory. This was even in the 60s and 70s. Um, 
that they actually put in a switch that was the GR on switch or off. General relativity on or off. Right. Make this correction based on general relativity or don't. Or don't. So needless to say, that switch has been left to on since those satellites went up. But th but that's the level of skepticism that people had, that this esoteric space-time curved walla 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 theory could really have to do with hard-nosed practical things. But what you're saying, they were skeptical of it when? Not this that was long in, ago. This was in the 60s and 70s when they were, when they were designing the GPS system. You know, first. 50 or so years after Einstein introduced the theory. That's right. People were still kind of doubting it. Mm -hmm. Well... You know, help me understand this, because, I, I mean, I thought Einstein was hailed not long after, only a couple of years after, uh, 1915, when he introduced the theory, as being right. Right. And you're talking 50 years later, people are still so dubious that they have a switch on the GPS system to turn Einstein off. Um, <laughs> so has general relativity been proven? I mean, it seems to me that this GPS effect alone is proof, right? That opens up a whole category of questions about in what ways do we have evidence for general relativity? GPS is certainly one of them. So this effect that clocks run differently at different heights, at different gravitational potentials, as, as we would say, is pretty much proven beyond a shadow of a doubt by GPS, if, if not other things. There are other experiments along those lines. Trickier things are what happens in a very strong gravitational fields. So the gravitational field of the Earth, you know, it feels pretty impressive to us, and it's very hard to get away from the Earth, but it's actually quite weak compared to what it could be. If you think about exotic objects like black holes and things like that, they're a whole different level of gravitational field. And there, Einstein's relativity is not nearly as well tested. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I dare say no one's been uh, to a black hole to test it yet. <laughs> That's right. Although we're we're trying. So, one of the things that is very interesting in, in observational astronomy and, and physics is looking for gravitational waves. Now, this is a whole discussion, but a gravitational wave um, is a, a sort of ripple in space-time that can carry information. And one thing that they're looking for are gravitational waves from objects falling into big black holes. Um, and... Those are gravitational waves we can measure in, in potential future experiments. So if we could do those experiments, we could get sort of direct hand evidence of what it looks like when a star, say, is swallowed up by a supermassive black hole. And that would tell us all kinds of interesting things about strong gravity. Um, there are other things we can do. There was a, some years ago discovered a so-called pulsar binary. This is two pulsars that are orbiting each other. And the marvelous thing about pulsars is these are these are kind of star. The, uh, so a pulsar is is a super compact star. It's kind of a it's a fast rotating neutron star where where maybe a tablespoon of this would would weigh a thousand tons. This super dense object and very small. So their gravity field is very strong. They also give off very regular flashes of radio waves that we can measure astronomically. And the timing of these things because they're so massive. Um, they they rotate at an incredibly regular rate. The timing and the the accuracy with which you can measure the sort of orbits of these things with respect to each other is just astonishing. You look at these numbers and this you know pulsar's period is four point six three two one seven four six eight five one two milliseconds. You know, but because they're so accurate, you can measure all kinds of interesting things about the dynamics and and the general relativistic effects in the dynamics of those systems. And that's where we're going to have to leave off for today with our intro to general relativity 
with physicist Anthony Aguirre of UC Santa Cruz. But we are not done with the subject. In fact, the second in this two-part series will pick up next week. I've been your host, Robert Polly, and I'll talk to you then. And our website, where you can find past shows and other information, is 7thAvenueProject.com.